This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Hello, GYC. I'd ask you all how you are, but uh, you'd probably all give me different answers. It's good to be here. I'm very, very honored. A bit nervous. There's quite a lot of you here. I've never spoken before so many people before. There we go. That's a little bit better. Now you're all one person, one large person, <laughs> like the body of Christ should be. All right. So today's topic, human trafficking. I don't know how much you guys know about it, but I was asked uh, to speak to you about human trafficking, about my testimony, about prayer, and about the investigative judgment, and I've got 49 minutes. There were some things I was going to leave out, and I was going to basically just focus on the testimony just because the amount of time that we have, but in all honesty, I don't think that you'd be able to truly understand the gravity and the enormity of what we call human trafficking without including some parts. So I've written them down so I can just, for sake of brevity, read through it real quick. I want to warn you, um, human trafficking is not a pretty subject. So we are going to talk about some, I guess you could say, more mature subject matter if you get uncomfortable about those kinds of things. I won't feel offended. I know it's not on the heart of everyone, and it's a bit difficult for some people to swallow. Uh, but I would also like... Um, to ask for forgiveness. If anybody in here knows who I am and I've offended you in any way, then please forgive me because I cannot bring my gift before the altar until I've made it good. And so I pray that you would do that. I'd like to begin with the definition of human trafficking. Human trafficking oftentimes is associated with just trafficking, moving of persons from one place to another. When I talk about it, People generally assume that it's, oh, some people coming from Thailand or Europe or Africa to America being prostituted and whatnot. I'm not talking about that. Human trafficking oftentimes is used as an umbrella term, but in reality what I'm talking about is modern-day slavery. And I want to give you a definition of what slavery is. At its core, it is the exploitation of another person's vulnerability for the sake of one's own profit. If we think about what that means, ultimately, you and I can be traffickers because we do that to each other. There are vulnerabilities that we see in other people, and sometimes we just want to take advantage of it to get our own way. We are all capable of being human traffickers. We're all capable of peddling lies, of peddling each other. But what we're talking about today is that principle but at the higher level. Slavery in the modern-day world. If you would bow your heads with me, I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Father, Lord, you are our Father. And sometimes I wonder how it is that you see us, your children, and what it is that we do to each other. How it must break your heart, not only what we do to each other, but oftentimes those who are nearest to you neglect to help those that are in need. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would open up our minds to see how it truly plays out in the great controversy, this idea of slavery, 
and how you, O Lord, the God of the Exodus, Christ on the cross, all the examples that you've given us of how you've come to set us free, to deliver us, O Lord, from slavery, how you want to also make us abolitionists, redeemers, of Lord, O Lord, of those who are lost. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give me, O Lord, the words to say. There's a lot I could say, but I, I pray, Lord, that you would give me what I should say. I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for the answering of this prayer. May your Holy Spirit be upon us, for we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, my last request before we start is I, I want you guys not to draw quick conclusions. There's a tendency when we talk about a subject that is so great that it's very difficult for me to kind of reduce it. Um, so there's a lot of aspects that we're going, I mean, that exist, but we're not going to really discuss them. I'm going to focus on a very, very, very small window. I'm going to do the best that I can to give you a general view, but most of it is going to be how I believe God has called us to answer the problem. If you have more questions about what the problem looks like, find me and I'll tell you. But I believe that the most important part is for us to know how God answers this problem. I'd like to begin with a quick story. And um, there were two Australians, and they were in London, and they were at a bar, at a pub, getting drunk. And they came out late at night, drunk, stammering, falling all over themselves. And they walked up to a gentleman, and they said, Excuse me, sir, do you know where we are? And the man, he was a very decorated naval officer, and he felt offended that these drunk men came to him and asked him for directions. And he said, Do you know who I am? In response, one of the drunk Australians turned to his friend and said, We're in trouble now. We don't know where we are, and he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> the main thing is identity. We laugh at it, but we struggle with it. We don't know who we are. If we did, we'd fight in a very different way. Because who we are is dependent not on what we do, but who we belong to. Who we are is 100% dependent on whose we are. And if we were His, we'd fight like Him. I'd like to read some notes that I wrote real quickly just to kind of give an overview of the great controversy, terms that we've discussed of exploitation of vulnerability. It all began in heaven with a glorious angel who had turned his strength into his greatest weakness, namely his wisdom and beauty. Ezekiel 28:17 says, thine, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. But listen well, for it says, Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom. This mystery of iniquity is that no one created his vulnerability but he himself. And no one set to exploit him but he himself. He created his own vulnerability and exploited it. It can be at times that our greatest blessings, we can turn them into our greatest curses. And that which was meant for our benefit, wrongly received, cause our greatest fall. As Lucifer began to fuel a false aggrandizement of himself, he began to place his creator on a lower plane and himself on a higher one. And thus began his belief in himself to be who he was not and his maker to be who he was not. The corruption of his wisdom grew ever greater till a simple fracture in his thoughts became a fissure and a fissure became a great divide. Because angels had never experienced anything other than God's goodness, they had no concept of evil. 
Because of their great trust in the covering cherub who dwells in the presence of God, they were ripe for the seeding of doubt, that something or someone other than God can be righteous without obedience to God's law. Because of his position in proximity to God and the angel's ignorance to any other option than God's law, he was able to sow doubt in the angel's mind of God's true character. Falsely representing him and sowing doubt into the need to heed God's law, falsely representing it as restricting of freedom. This vulnerability Lucifer exploited to the fullest. When the righteous angels attempted to plead with the discontented ones to cease from their revolt, placing before their eyes how God had only been good and just with all creation, Lucifer once again exploited his previously created vulnerability, the doubt in God's justice, by claiming that God was not the type to forgive rebellion once it had already been entertained, and that they had already gone too far to be forgiven by him. He solidified the demise of a third of the angels by simply misrepresenting both parties in the controversy, by misnaming, if you will, God as the stern and unforgiving of rebellion and themselves as the righteous underdogs that were already set on a path of no return. So their fate they cemented according to their beliefs. This pattern was repeated to our first parents, Adam and Eve, whose vulnerability of ignorance of evil ended up being exploited in much the same way as the angels. And so began the earthly controversy between the two seeds, those who believe God who says who he says he is, and those who believe the devil is who he says he is. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy the image of God in the eyes of all creation. And by destroying the image of God, he is destroying our identity in God. When Satan can peddle you a lie about who God is, he can peddle you a lie about who you are. And once he manages to peddle you a lie about who God is and who you are, he can peddle you. Ezekiel 28, once again, says that by the multitude of his merchandise, of his merchandise, he was filled and has filled the earth with violence. And by reason of his trafficking, he will be devoured by, by fire. Satan is a peddler. He is a merchant of souls. His job is to create a divide. His job is to create fractures. But he represents God in that way. But God is actually the one who repairs the breach. He's the restorer of paths to dwell in. What Satan really wants is he wants to destroy the family, which is the image of God. And that's why we have an early pagan religion uh, ritual rape, pagan rites where tons of people basically come together with their faces covered and they have sex so that the children being born to the women, they have no idea who the fathers are. That was one of his ways of destroying the family. When you don't have a father, you have no identity. And when we don't have our father, we have no identity. I want to read to you some statistics before I start my story. Here's some information to try to solidify my point. 95% of victims have a history of family issues or abuse. Actually, one of, the, one of the pimps that I talked to, he said, I really have to hand it to the fathers because they just started her off in her training. I picked her up, I picked her up where he left off. That's not saying that all of it is done by fathers, but it's all done by a close figure, generally a family, family friend. 95% of victims of human trafficking have a history of family issues or abuse. 
over 70%, and it's about 75% of blacks, 65% of Native Americans, 50% of Hispanics, and 30% of white children are born to unmarried women in the United States. No fathers. Over 700,000 children are abused annually. 80% due to neglect, 10% to violence, 10% to sexual issues. I believe it's more than that, but 40% of the abuse was perpetrated by a family member or a caregiver. 25% of the abusers were other children. One out of every three girls and one out of every five boys will have been abused by the age of 18. That's 33% of children in the United States will have been abused by the age of 18. Roughly 800,000 children go missing in the U.S. a year. That's more than 2,000 children a day. And many of them are not even reported. 80% of those are vulnerable runaways who easily fall victims to pimps and traffickers. What's the conclusion? Satan is preparing the world to be trafficked. He's creating as many vulnerabilities in the lives of children that he possibly can by destroying their identity, by destroying the family structure. Most people don't know who they are. That's pretty sad. I've been involved in, in counter-human trafficking for the past seven years, and I, I've seen a lot, but it, it kind of came to a culmination in 2013 when I was in New Orleans during the Super Bowl, I just felt darkness like I'd never felt before. I don't know if you guys ever walked into a place and you just feel like the air is so thick. You just like cut through it with a knife. It's just, I don't know, just oppressive atmosphere. And I knew that the following year, 2014, there was going to be a lot of trafficking going on during the FIFA World Cup because events like that, just, they just bring people who want other types of entertainment as well. So I did some research. It's turned out that 500,000 kids were already being sold into slavery in Brazil during that time, and the government had believed that it would increase by 300% during the FIFA World Cup. I wasn't in the best spiritual place. I was kind of depressed. I was tired of, of being in the darkness. I was tired of trying to fight the darkness. And the thing is, when you spend so much time in darkness, it, it, it just gets to you. I said, but I, I know that I need to do something. So I went to ASI, I went to GYC, I tried to talk to a lot of, of Adventist organizations. There's not a lot going on in the realm of human trafficking. There was probably one, I think, Asian Aid that, that did some things in Nepal and India. But nobody wanted to hear anything about it. Nobody wanted to hear anything about it. It's, oh, that's nice. Uh, yeah, okay. We don't know who you are. You're a nobody. You, uh, you have some organization or something. You, you're, you're nobody. Okay, that's nice. Go do your thing. I said, well, you know what? If nobody wants to help me, that's fine. I'll do it. I felt that if I did nothing, knowing what was going on, I would not be able to live with myself as a man. Knowing that generally it's me who's the problem. Men, we're the problem. I mean, women don't hate on us because we're also part of the solution. But help us. And so I made connections with non-Adventist organizations, and they seemed more willing. I got to Brazil, and all of those connections completely fell through. No emails were answered. No phone calls were returned. And I was like, man, I, I already committed. I told everybody that I was going to be here for at least six months. What's going on? So what do I do? I was tired of being depressed and feeling sorry for myself, so I started to walk outside and literally just... 
a block away from where I was staying, I saw this woman who looked so much more depressed than I was. I was like, um, maybe I should say something to her. I didn't speak Portuguese at the time, so I said, oh, you know what, I'll just pray for her. So I ended up praying for her. That's why I prayed for her. That's not something that I do. I'm not a praying person. I, let me do something. I want some action. I want to build something. I want to rescue some kids. I want to do something, you know? But, you know, at this moment, praise God, I didn't speak the language. I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't give her my wisdom on how to deal with her problems, so I just prayed for her. And after I'd prayed for her, I started walking again, saw another person, prayed for him, saw another person, prayed for them. I'm like, what is wrong? Is this like depressed day or something that everybody's walking around looking all gloomy? So I just started praying for people and walking, and I walked through a place that I knew seemed a little bit shady. I mean, my experience in trafficking said that this is probably a place where there's either drug or, 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 or prostitution use. And so I prayed for that place. And before I knew it, five hours had passed. And all I did was just pray. And I got back to the house, and I look at myself, and I go, this is what you wanted to tell me the entire time, isn't it? You wanted to basically root out my dependence on people, on programs, on, on, on organizations, and all you wanted to do was to show me that you're enough. I get it. I know I'm stubborn, but I get it. But I'm going to need something from you. If you want me to pray, I want to go to every single city that is hosting the World Cup. And you know I only have got $800, and I've got six months left. You're going to have to take me to every single city in Brazil, 12 capital cities of states in Brazil that were hosting the World Cup. And I'm going to walk 1,000 miles minimum. And I ended up walking 1,500. So I said I was basically going to walk around seven times around each of the stadiums. But then I was later corrected that Joshua had actually done it 13 times. I had forgotten that he did six days one time, and then on Sabbath he did it seven times, and then it fell down. But anyway, I walked around seven times around each stadium. I had my friend that actually came with me, my friend Levi, so that I wouldn't go alone. I mean, it looks kind of shady if you walk by yourself and say you're praying for prostitutes, right? I mean, so, so I needed somebody to keep me accountable and, and be with me and make the ministry work. And so my friend Levi, just on short notice, he came also with no money. And uh, we decided, okay, let's do this. We've got 800 bucks, and... By the way, at the end of the, the, the time period that we had, we had received $8,000 in donations without asking. And we never had to stay in a hotel. There were just people who would wait for us at the airports and at the bus stops who we'd never met in our lives before and let us stay in their homes. Talk about like the, the, the book of Acts, you know, it was kind of like that. Um, we gave 10%, God gave the rest. We tithed and he gave us the rest. But I wanted to do more than just pray for the stadiums. I wanted to actually go into favelas. And favelas are basically Brazil's type of slum. Now, the favelas have, are, are quite notorious because not even cops go in. If there's anything that they have to accomplish, they'll go in basically as a SWAT team, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, they're in, they're out, and they're on with their life because they don't want to stay in there. It is just a bad place. Not all favelas are like that, but general, that's, that's kind of... So we were in a town called Recife or Recife, and we were staying there, and uh, the family said, listen, we really like what you guys are doing. We appreciate it. You guys can stay at our house, but please do not walk into a favela. You guys are ignorant Americans. You don't know our culture. You don't know what goes on in there, and I know you think you can handle it, but you will get shot. You will get robbed. And uh, I said, you know what? I really appreciate it, Mom. Um, she was kind of like our, our Brazilian mom. They adopted us. But this is... You know, we, we had verses that we had the foundation of our mission. It was Proverbs chapter 1. Our, our ministry was called Crying at the Gates. 
But at this point, there was another verse that was coming to mind, and that was the one that Natasha read to you. Judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man. And he wondered that there was no intercessor. You know, people said, well, you can intercede from outside. Well, sure, I suppose so, but that doesn't make us very good soldiers in that regard. I mean, when, when Satan came as a representative of his territory, he basically said, look, I'm coming from walking to and fro in my place. And God says, no, I've, I've got my outpost right there in the middle of your territory. For his reason, have you even considered him? We've got to be in the midst of Satan's territory if we're going to be representatives for God. I mean, God, he allows, he respects choice and free will. He's not going to enter a place where he's not been invited. Satan doesn't follow those rules. He'll force anything that he wants upon anyone. But God has to be invited. He has to be asked. He's not going to violate. That's his rules of engagement in the spiritual war. We have to go. We have to cry from the midst of that place. And we're going to believe what, was, what, what Joshua said, what, what God said to Joshua, everywhere you have placed the sole of your foot, that have I given you. So I says, we're going to place our, our, the sole of our feet in the midst of those places. If it risks our life, then whatever. So we did. We went into those places. We walked in. And a guy stopped us at the, at the door. And he basically said, at the door, at the entrance, one of the, one of the roads leading into the favela, and he said, what are you guys doing here? He said, oh, you know, we had a friend with us who was Brazilian, because we still didn't speak Portuguese at this time. He said, oh, these are Americans, they're here to pray for you and stuff like that. Yeah, we just wondered if we could walk in. You're here to pray for us. Oh, yeah, come on in, come on in, we love. You love what? Anything. You come pray for us. We go, oh, okay, all right. So we walked in, and the first person he takes us to, the high priest of black magic, Contemblé as it's called, the high priest of black magic, voodoo religion, in that place. And we talk with him, and basically this is the situation. The favelas are controlled by Contemblé religion in general. This is a religion of black magic. This is a religion where you cast curses. And believe me, it works. There are so many people who have lost their spouses because other people cast spells on them. One of the prostitutes that we talked to later on said that she was working as a prostitute because on her three children, someone cast a black magic spell. And she was so afraid that they were going to die that she had to pay $10,000 equivalent to, pray, to, to, to pay another high priest to cast a protective spell. We're walking into the situation where darkness rules the place. And he says, you know what? He says, no one comes in here and talks to us. We know that spiritual warfare exists. We know because we see the darkness of it. We wish we had something else that someone would give us another option, but nobody comes in here, they're scared. You're the first person to come in and pray for us. You think we want to do what we want to do? You think we like doing what we do? But we don't know anything else. The man that let us in ended up crying as we were leaving. The Lord answered that prayer, whether we should enter or not into favelas. We ended up entering in more than 15 while we were there. Next was the prayer whether we should be praying for prostitutes or not. So we were with another friend, once again, we didn't speak Portuguese at the time, in the same town. 
And we were driving, and he said, oh, hey, Alex, look, there's, there's a prostitute under that bridge. Do you want to stop and talk to her? I said, yes, absolutely, let's stop and talk to her. And so he rolls down the window. She comes by. She's looking in. He says, oh, listen, I've got two Americans here. She's like, oh, Americans, all right, do they want a program? Oh, no, 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 they're not here for that. They're here to pray for you. Her face changes as if she was a completely different person because let me tell you, in prostitution, prostitutes are two different people. They put on a mask to make you think that, that there's someone who they're not. So she comes up and, and, and it, her, her demeanor just completely changes. She says, oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming to pray for me. Says, you know, I don't want to be doing what I'm doing, but you know what, I've got two kids and my husband left me. Says, I don't have any skills whatsoever. He used to pay the bills for everything. And so I'm trying my very best to support my family and I don't know what else to do. But every single day I pray to God that he would send someone to take me out of this. And I've been studying the Bible and I want to get baptized, but I'm afraid that if people know who I am, that they won't let me get baptized. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the Adventist church, but I believe everything they say and I want to get baptized. She's looking for us and we're not looking for her. Listen, we know who you are and we're Adventists and we don't care because we know who you really are. And do you know what her name was? Hosanna. And we praise the Lord for that. We ended up going to another city. We said, okay, now we know we need to pray for prostitutes, but now we need to train people in every single city to go and pray. And we had a project in mind because in the, in the three years that I worked with the ministry in Atlanta, we did something called Princess Night. And what Princess Night is, we basically go out, we hand out cards with little messages, a phone number, and a rose to prostitutes on the corner of streets. And we tell them, hey, listen, you've got value. You're beautiful. You're special. God does not want you to be here all right? I know that you've only seen bad things and people have said that they love you and they care for you and have only treated you like dirt. So there's very little reason for you to believe us, but I'm asking you that you believe me. And they did this for years. And, and, and the organization that I worked with, the first year that we ran a 24-hour call center, 45 women came off the street. The second year, 115. And the third year, 245. And it was all because there were people praying 24 hours a day, every day for the ministry. So I said, Lord, you've got to give us somebody. You've got to send people to us to pray because we're not going to just walk in here. You know, we can pray for the, for the stadium. We can pray for favelas. But we need somebody to constantly be here to pray for those in trafficking. So you've got to bring us somebody. So we went to the next city, and we arrived at the same time that Carnival was going on in Brazil. Now, during Carnival, most Adventists leave the cities because they don't want to observe what's going on. And they actually go into little camps. And so we went to this little camp. And, you know, something happened and they were, some people were speaking English. They were trying to show off how, their, how good their English was. And then I spoke up in English and they're like, oh, your English is really good. It's like, oh, well, I'm from America. It's, oh, you're from America. That's fantastic. Do you want to tell us what you're here for? It's like, oh, well, I mean, I'm here doing a project, anti-trafficking. Like, oh, do you want to you come up and present? And so they gave me a little spot. And basically, you know, it was a voluntary. You didn't have to come and actually listen to me. But 40 people actually came. And it was a group of maybe... 80 there, so about half the people came and listened to me for three hours. Now, you're not going to have to go through that. Don't worry about it. All right, I've only got another 20 minutes left. 
But listen for me for three hours, and afterwards, afterwards, a group of like 10 or, I don't remember if it was 10 or 12, young people came up to me and says, listen, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, the Lord put it upon our hearts that we should start singing songs or doing something for prostitutes in the street, and we don't even know why because we don't like them. But here you come three weeks later saying how you're looking for people to go into the streets and minister to them, and we're thinking, oh, you're an answer to our prayer, and I'm thinking you're an answer to mine. So we train them. We write the cards, we get the flowers, and in America, you know, usually go with 20 roses and you come back with five after three or four hours. I mean, very low acceptance rate. We take them to the streets. In 45 minutes, all the flowers and cards are gone. People are crying. Five people want Bibles and two want Bible studies. These kids come back and they're like, how could I have been so wrong? I thought... I thought they wanted to be there. I thought that, that that was their life. I thought that they enjoyed that kind of thing. They began to see their own faults, their own misconceptions. And God was taking the blinders from their eyes. They stood for, I don't know, two and a half hours talking till one o'clock at night with their parents, just crying and telling them, I had no idea. I feel so bad. And one of them gave us his real name. One of them was a man. Sometimes it's safer to be a man in the streets dressed as a woman than it is to be a woman. We won't go into that. He says they gave us, he gave us his real name. He felt that we had treated him with enough dignity that we deserved to know who he really was. Not who people thought he was. His name was Alexander, or Alexandri. And they thought that was the greatest thing ever. There's a lot of power in a name. There's a lot of power in identity. Do we know who we are? The next city, and I don't want to leave it out, and I, pray not, I may not even get to a conclusion. If you ever want to hear part two, come talk to me. But I have to tell you about the last city. It's not the last city. The last city on our list. We, we ended up going to eight more after this. But the name of it is Fortaleza. And Fortaleza is the second um, biggest destination for child sex tourism in the world, after Bangkok, Thailand. And so I knew that we needed to do something. We get there, and the pastor doesn't want us to talk about our ministry. He says, listen, it's nice. We do, a lot, we do enough projects here. Listen, you know, we're doing evangelism. We're doing outreach. We're doing all this stuff. We really, don't, we, we really don't want our people going and talking to prostitutes, honestly. So that's fine. I understand. It's a bit, it's a bit of a difficult you know, subject situation. Don't worry about it. It's okay. But that same week, a, um, a man came in asking for help to the church while the pastor was there. And he said, listen, I'm from Sao Paulo, and I need to get back. Will you give me money to get back to Sao Paulo? And Sao Paulo is very far away from Fortaleza, and so it would cost a, a good bit of money. And the pastor said, no, so we don't give money away. But if you're willing to work, we'll buy your ticket. He says, okay, that's fair enough. So what do you do? He's like, I paint. Good. Our church is due in for a nice fresh coat of paint, so he started painting the inside. The pastor had mentioned that two Americans were staying at, at, at his house, and the guy says, I want to meet them. Can you have them come paint with me on Thursday? He's like, okay, I don't know why, but sure. 
And during, and this was on, on Monday or Tuesday, I don't remember. So a few days had passed, and he had been listening for about three days to the pastor and the Bible worker going through a revelation seminar. And uh, he would just quietly listen because they were basically preparing. So he had basically heard the entire 27 days or 28 days worth of Bible studies in three days while he was painting. He says, I really, really need to meet these Americans. Okay, we'll be, t- be here tomorrow, Thursday. So we came in and uh, we started painting with him. His name was Williams and he said, I know why you're here. Okay. So I know why you're here. And says, there's a lot of things that I can't tell you right now. But I've listened to absolutely everything that these pastor and the Bible worker have said. And I assure you that I've never heard any single, any, anything like that from a Christian religion in my life. And being a Satanist, and I've been in Satanism for a long time, and every single one of my family members is part of either the, 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 the Church of Satan or the Masonic Lodge in Sao Paulo. And I've tried, you know, I was thinking that I'd get away by coming here, but nothing worked out, so I was going to go back. But I came into this church and I've heard a part of the gospel that I've never heard before. No other church is preaching and I know you guys have the truth. But I still know that even though you talk about the controversy, they don't know. The pastor and the Bible worker don't know, but I know. He says, I know what you're doing. But I have to get baptized first before I can tell you. He says, that's why I've decided to get baptized this Sabbath. In three days, he was ready to get baptized. So he came, he got baptized. After he got baptized, he comes to me and he says, Alex... Levi, what you're trying to do is take Satan's property from him. Those are his girls. You don't understand that. They're his. He doesn't play nice. Other people talk and they evangelize and they do things, but you are literally taking, plucking his property from his hand. You can't do that without fear of repercussions. Everyone talks about the great controversy. Everybody talks about spiritual warfare, but nobody engages in it. You're on the front lines. You're doing something, and I don't know if you understand how much danger you are. I'll be honest with you, I didn't. He says, I'm telling you because Satan wants your life. You've been marked because of what you're doing. And I feel sorry for you. I'm glad for you, and I'm glad you're doing this, but I feel so sorry for you. Because Satan is going to do everything to either cause you to fall into sin or to completely end your life. Will you listen to me and take some certain precautions? All the people who just want to be part of this ministry because it sounds cool, it looks cool, get some t-shirts, stay away from them. Their very presence with you while you enter into these places where your life is in danger will endanger you more. The very presence of someone who doesn't think in a manner of prayer, in a manner of intercession, is risking your life. You can't walk into the devil's territory thinking about soccer. We got the warning. We got the warning. Afterwards, I, I came and, and, and I, I apologized to my friend Levi and our translator at that time, Andrea. I said, there's something I need to tell you. I didn't tell you before because I didn't think we'd confront it. But in the previous years that I've involved in human trafficking, in reality, there's a lot of religion involved. 
There's a tendency for us to think that it's organized crime, that it's just some small-time pimp, that whatever. But in reality, they use, you know, the pimps, they use uh, William Lynch's manual for how to train slaves. That's how they basically beat into them um, the whole slave-master relationship. If you think that slavery is over, it's not. The same manual that was used uh, in colonial times is still being used now to make prostitutes. We've had girls that we've rescued, and at times on specific days of the year, they disappeared, and they showed up a few days later, usually two to three days later, gang-raped and dead on the side of the street. It was always after pagan feast days. We had girls that had tremendous amounts of disassociative identity disorder. They had gone under certain types of programming, monarch programming. You guys probably don't know about that. Mind control programming. You think it's a joke. It's not. I see it. I've seen it. I'm not some conspiracy theorist. I've dealt with people caught in it. There are churches in America that are working actively to destroy Christianity. Everywhere I go, I, I've, I've tried to disassociate it sometimes and just think that all I'm dealing with is just, oh, it's just we're dealing with some pimps and some organized crime. And I'm sorry that I didn't tell you beforehand that we are really in spiritual warfare. And only until this man came and really told us that Satan is trying to kill us am I finally getting it. We need to pray. So the three of us started to pray. I prayed, Levi prayed, Andrea prayed. While Andrea was praying... I began to see a tree. And I saw a tree, and its branches reached to the ends of the earth. Um, and I couldn't see the horizon at all. The tree was just vast, covered the sky completely. And it was kind of dark, you know, very little light was filtering through the branches, through the leaves. And, I, and, and all of a sudden I hear this, like, clanging sound. I, I look up in the branches, and there's these dolls and these mannequins without face tied about the neck with chains, dangling from these branches, a very eerie and unsettling scene. And I'm wondering, why in the world is this coming to my mind while we're praying? And I open my eyes, and it's still there. It's not going away. I'm shaking my head. I'm looking, Lord, take this away. This is ridiculous. I have no idea why I'm thinking about this. And after time, I, I just lose my patience, so I, I, I start grabbing the chains, these dolls and these mannequins without faces, and I'm pulling them from the branches, and it's not helping at all. And all of a sudden, I get desperate, and I just say, God, help me. Please help me. The moment that I cried out for help, I noticed the base of the tree, the trunk. And there was a man standing there with an axe, and I was getting the idea that he was about to do something. And I said, yes, Lord, give him strength. And the man picked up the axe and he began to chop at the base of the tree and the tree was shuddering and all the branches were shaking and these dolls and mannequins were, were raging violently from side to side. And I said, I don't care how unsettling it is, cut down the tree. He kept on chopping and chopping and chopping and finally the tree gave way and it fell. And all the branches, for some reason, didn't make sense to me. They all were spread out around me on the floor and the first thing that I did was look up I could see the sun, and I said, God, thank you. And then I began to pull the chains once again from the branches, and this time the chains disappeared. By the time it finished, Andrea had finished her praying. And I told Levi and Andrea what I'd seen, and we all agreed. 
just like it was for Nebuchadnezzar. The tree was a system, a kingdom, whose influence spreads to the ends of the earth. There's not one thing that is not under its influence. And the dolls and the mannequins, the mannequins were adults and the dolls were children with no face, no identity, that were being held by this system of oppression. And if we try in our own strength like I did to pull them free, to rescue them, it does absolutely nothing. Only when I cried out to the only one who is able, Christ the intercessor, to cut down the tree, once he separates that tree of slavery, that system of corruption from the roots of sin, once we've interceded on behalf of those who are caught in it, and he's covered them in his righteousness so that they are not held by the bonds of sin, so that his spirit can reach into their lives just like it did into that prostitute who said she was studying to be an Adventist. It is only by intercession that this system can be brought down. And once intercession has been made, then you can rescue. Then you can pull free. But until that point, all our efforts are useless. Evangelism is useless. Debate is useless. We read in Isaiah 59 that truth has fallen in the streets. Yahweh will always stand for truth. No, truth has fallen. It's not standing. Judgment has turned away backward. Justice is far away. And equity, where is it? Oh, it can't even enter the gates. We stand for truth and social justice and judgment and equity. Oh, great. But it's dead because what? Something's missing. Intercession. What power do we have without God? When will we get it that in this great controversy, our efforts are nothing? If we knew who God was, the great intercessor, we would be intercessors. Why? Because we'd realize that the battle that we fight is a spiritual and only He can fight it. I mean, don't we know the verses? We war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers of rules of darkness in high places. And yet, what do we do? Programs. Let's do more programs. Let's get together. Let's think how we can solve these issues. No, God has a solution. I'm not belittling organization. It's great. I'm not belittling evangelization. It's great. I'm just saying we can't do it without the power of God. And too often we do. I want to tell you a little story about vengeance. You guys like vengeance? I'm going to see if you have a wrong idea about it or not. Suffice it to say that in that town where we received very little welcome, Fortaleza, at 11 o'clock, the day that we were supposed to, the day before we were supposed to leave, two people said, we'll do your project. Talk about the 11th hour, right? You know? They said, we'll do it. But we don't have enough time to train. So the people from the previous city who we had trained, who were so willing, came and trained them. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 we love to do that. Let me show you how to do the cards and the, and the roses and everything. They were so excited. That's what we wanted. We, I get a call a month later after I'd left Fortaleza. And they said, uh, the girl, Hadassah, who, who had did the, agreed to do the project, she said, I got this phone call 
And because uh, two weeks ago we did the princess night, we re- reached out to the prostitutes. And two weeks after we had done it, I get this phone call. And I thought you should know about it. You know, we give the cards with our phone number. I put my phone number on there. And this woman calls me and says, I don't know if you remember me, but two weeks ago, you were out handing cards and, pros- uh, cards and, and roses to the prostitutes, and I was one of them. Says, and I, and I want to let you know that my husband had left me, and I've got kids that I have to take care of, and, and I, you know, same thing, fatherlessness, if you think it's not an issue. And, and I didn't know what to do, and so I decided that I was going to sell myself into prostitution. But I want to let you know that that was the first night that I was going to do it. And before I, I got to my first client, you stopped me midway. You stopped me midway, and you prayed for me. And you gave me a card, and you told me that I have value. And I realized that God values me so much that I can't do this to myself. You know, the church had, had asked us a question that, you know, the pastor and his wife and a lot of men, uh, well-meaning people said, listen, we like this idea, but you don't have a recovery program. Once they come off the street, what are they going to do? I mean, you need institutions and all this kind of stuff. I said, listen, if, if you don't even have the need on your radar, there's not going to be organizations to receive them. You've got to realize that there's a need first, and then the organizations will come. Anyway, this woman said, so um, I didn't believe you. It took me two weeks to get up the courage to actually call the phone number on the card, but I'm desperate. Will you help me? And uh, she said, yeah, come clean my house. And members from the church heard what happened, and they started hiring her to clean their house. To me, that's vengeance. Not the way that you think it is. Oh, yeah, we avenged, uh, revenged on the pastor. No, 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 he's a wonderful man. He helped us so much. We stayed in his home. What I'm talking about is true religion vengeance. Do you know what true religion is? What does James 1.27 say? Does anybody know? True religion before God and the Father is this, what? To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's true religion. Isaiah mentions the fatherless and the widows so many times. Why? Because to the Hebrew, identity, name was everything. If you don't have a name, you don't have an inheritance. If you don't have an inheritance, you suffer the second death. You're forgotten. A widow and an orphan has nothing. No name. No man to give them an identity. That's why true religion is to intercede on behalf of those who are most vulnerable. Namely, those who don't have a name. The widow and the orphan. But every single time it mentions, almost every single time it mentions the widow and the orphan in Isaiah, it always couples it with vengeance or judgment. And even this verse that we read in Isaiah 59 where it's talking about how all this stuff is going wrong and judgment is backwards and all that kind of stuff and how intercession was needed. If you read later, in verse 6, uh, verse 17... He put righteous as a brace, righteousness as a breastplate, the helmet of salvation upon his head. He put on the garments of vengeance. He clothed himself with vengeance when he saw that nothing was going right and that there was no intercessor. Why? Why is the widow and the orphan always associated with judgment or vengeance? You know what's interesting? We always think that vengeance is, oh, God's going to judge the wicked. He's going to lay down the smackdown. You know, we're going to pummel these guys and I'm going to take my bomb and smack some people on their head and show them that they don't know the truth. That's not vengeance. That's not vengeance. 
If you have 10 against 10, all right, 10 people against 10 people, and you manage to kill five, is that great? No, because Satan doesn't care if his own people die. Why? Because that's a person who's died lost. Satan has no loyalties to the people who follow him. He wants you to die while serving him because that means God can't have them. God's vengeance is redemption. To say that we've got 10 against 10 and 5 have been converted, we're now three times the number of them. That's why he says, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink, for in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire upon his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Every single time somebody learns of their true identity, God is avenged. Every single time you get on your knees and you intercede for somebody who is lost, God is avenged. The war that we fight is one over identity. God has been misrepresented. If we knew who he was, we'd know who we are. If we knew who we are, we'd intercede because Christ is an intercessor. Was it not the greatest intercession on the cross? Do we not follow in our Savior's footsteps? Do we not say that we're a part of the great controversy? God beheld that there was no man. There was no intercessor. I pray that that would not be the case with us. Will there be a man? Will there be an intercessor? I've come to the end of my time. I probably go... They said, oh, I, they said I can go two to three minutes over. That's good. There's still a lot I wanted to say, but... Let me make an appeal to you. Let me make an appeal to you. First of all, I want to make an appeal to the abused. There are some people here, no doubt, the church is not foreign to the existence of abuse, of exploitation, of vulnerabilities in our own church. It's just as bad as the rest of the world. We can't ignore that. If you have suffered from abuse, I would first and foremost like to apologize myself. I'd like to apologize that I was not always aware of your existence, of your plight, of the things that you go through. And that even after I became aware, I did not always intercede on your behalf. I feel very responsible for that. I'm sorry. But if you have been, I ask that you avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God will avenge you. God will give you a name better than sons and daughters. Please accept that. And by that, I don't mean saying that if you're already caught in it, that you just accept what's happening to you. By no means. If you are caught in it and you can hear me right now, I, I encourage you. I want to give you the courage to get out. I know you've been scared. You've been shamed. You've been told lies into thinking that it's your fault. That's not true. The devil always misrepresents himself. And he always misrepresents God. God wants to give you freedom. So please accept it. To those who are, want to do well. I, I know there's a lot of people who want to do well. I know I wanted to do well, but sometimes you get so bogged down.
by sin, by lust. You know, I personally don't believe that lust or problem relationships or serial relationships is a problem of perverseness. It may be. But I honestly think that most people who are struggling with lust, who are struggling with, with always having to be in a relationship, with always seeking attention, do it because they have never fully accepted God's adoption of them. You don't know fully who you are because maybe you don't know fully who God is. But you can be adopted. You know, I, I just had a baby girl and I have always had trouble with, 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 with identity as well. I had a baby girl and I look at her and I'm thinking she poops, she farts, she pees, she, she throws up, she cries for no apparent reason and I don't know why but she's the most beautiful thing in this world to me. And it was only until that moment that I realized that God looks at me and he says, Alex, you saw yourself, you complain, you cry and you make up all this stuff and you do it for absolutely no reason but you're the most beautiful thing in the world to me because you are made in my image. My daughter's in my image. Do you not realize that you're in the image of God? Please accept God's call to adoption and let that be your key to freedom from what it is that you struggle with. And last of all is a call for everyone, especially the righteous in here, the leaders in here, the I'm doing pretty well spiritually right now. My question first and foremost is why haven't you interceded? Because God says there's no man. And he wondered that there was no intercessor. Is the world a mess? Yes, the same it was in Israel during that time. Our intercession is either rather sporadic or weak. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come up unless you really want to. But I really want you to think about it. Will you become an intercessor? Can God look and say that judgment was facing forward? that justice was coming close, that truth was standing, and that equity was nearby. It was entering at the gates because there was a man and a woman. There was an intercessor. And by their intercession, they brought vengeance. Do you want to be that person? Do you want to be the avenger, the intercessor? Is my brother here, I guess? Stand if, if, if you do so that I can pray for you. Father, Lord, you've seen us. You've seen us, Lord, as we are. Lord, and oftentimes we've depended on our jobs, on our occupations to determine who we are. But Lord, who we are is not defined by what we do, but it's defined by who we belong to. If we call you our Father, O oh Lord, then let us act like your children. Lord, we're looking for better programs, we're looking for better plans, but you're just looking for better men. Men who pray. Men who intercede for the weak. Men who exercise true religion, intercession, and purity. That's true religion. Lord, all my brothers and sisters that have stood have done so because they desire to be intercessors. They want to wield intercession 
as the active tool of attack in spiritual warfare and purity as the active tool of defense. That is true religion. Lord, would you give us the strength to be your children, to be the ones that you've called us to, to see you as you really are so that we can understand who we really are. And by understanding who we are, that we would fight, O oh Lord, as you fight, because we're yours. Lord, we are in a great controversy. We're in a great conflict. We cannot lay down for the persecutor of our souls is always after us. Let us ever be vigilant, be sober. Continuing every instant in prayer by intercession on behalf of those who are in need, may we be purified. May your name be avenged. For we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the greatest intercessor of all time, and the one who is interceding even now on our behalf. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.